You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. I got a bad feeling about this. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! He's looking at you, kid. What we got here is a failure to communicate. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Uh, so, the first question, though, I have to ask, and this is not as pointed as it sounds. Why, Slappy, did you pick this movie? <laughs> um, It's... Uh, like in retrospect, I kind of like. All right, maybe this is getting into like the podcast books, but I'm not sure it was a great movie to pick. In retrospect, <laughs> uh, I mean it's 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 a strange movie. So the reason I picked it is I was going back and forth between a few movies, and the movies that I was uh, thinking of picking, I was pretty sure a lot of people already kind of seen. And so I was trying, I was trying to think of like a family cultish movie. Uh, and the I, well, there's two movies that are family cult movies. Well, I guess three if you just include all Godzilla movies, but I'm, I'm not going to go and try to defend uh, like the old school Godzilla movies to anybody. Um, and the there's Fargo, which I'm pretty sure we've seen. Uh, I'm just going to guess. Yeah. Uh, and then um, then True Stories, which is less likely because it's this. It's my dad's just a huge Talking Heads fan, and I'm pretty sure outside of huge Talking Heads fans, nobody really cares about this movie. When you say family cult films, you mean films that your family loves. Yes, like they have Fargo parties every once in a while, which I <laughs> I actually didn't watch Fargo for a really long time because they they wouldn't let me because of the chipper scene. Which honestly, when I went back and watched it, I was I was like, come on, come on, it's it's that part's not that bad. There's other parts that maybe are a little bit worse, but there's blood, I guess. I don't know. Um, but they also loved this movie, uh, True Stories, and I. I remember watching it all the way through once as a kid, and I was like, this movie's dumb. Uh, and so I wanted to have this experience of, you know, going back and telling my, you know, 10-year-old self or whatever whatever age I was, like, come on, you just didn't get it, blah, 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 blah. And then at the end of this movie, I'm like, mm, this is kind of dumb. And <laughs> I don't know. Well, okay, I, I'm, getting, I'm getting too far. But the reason I chose this movie is just because, like, one of the just, like, a family film that my family always talked about. I actually only ever saw it. I really ever sat with them and watched it once. And then every other time when they had their little watching party, cause they would invite like this other couple of friends and they would just watch it and laugh and quote the movie for a week after, which might have actually uh, negatively impacted my viewing of the film. Like the, uh, the line of, um, the thing about hot dog buns and hot dogs. Well, one comes at eight and one comes in <laughs> six and it takes, you have to get so many to like, I'm so sick of that line. And like, I know that I had a really negative reaction to that line in the film. Cause I've just heard it. So many times. <laughs> that line made me feel dumb because she said, you have to buy like eight to make it line up. And I was doing the math in my head and I'm like, I don't, I don't think that's right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a, it's a different number. Um, you really jumped into the middle of my notes here though by mentioning Fargo because as I was watching this, I kept thinking, man, this feels like a Coen Brothers movie, uh, at least occasionally, right? And, uh, I, I looked it up and, uh, Raising Arizona, which is obviously the most, uh, the Coen Brothers movie most similar to this one was released six months later. 
And it had similar cinematography, and it was shot in like a similar part of the country, with John Goodman in it, too. Although he put on a lot of weight between the two movies, it has to be said. Um, hmm. But I was thinking Coen's All the Way, and if they love Fargo, too, I guess that makes a lot of sense. Maybe it's just uh, uh, unusual local people with thick accents that they like? I don't know. I suppose well, I, I it think, must be yeah. something. You've both seen I, Raising Arizona, I take it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Coen brothers are, are, I think, from the Midwest, so... It makes it makes sense for them, uh, and yeah, they were definitely uh, one of two major points of reference that I had to sort of compare this to. It was it was the Coen Brothers movies, and then it was Twin Peaks, basically. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And another thing that's kind of just occurring to me now: uh, they love Fargo. One of my other notes here uh, was. Uh, that, you know, Fargo, the whole thing about Fargo is in the opening, it says it's based on a true story, which is a lie. Um, right. And this is called True Stories, and it clearly is full of stories that are not true. <laughs> Do your parents just really like people lying about what's true in their movies? That's such a weird thing to like that they have, I mean, are there other viewing parties, or is it just those two? It's pretty much just those two. They just get, I think they, honestly, I don't think it's that they like, it's anything much deeper than they like the, the dialogue, the quirky, the, I think you kind of nailed it with like the, uh, locality kind of thing where it's, they like locals having like these small little awkward discussions. Uh, and they just love, like, cause they love that scene in Fargo with like the, I can't remember his name, but the, uh, the Asian man who, comes back and has like a breakdown in front of uh, the main character. Uh, they love that scene. And that's kind of like, a, especially in the beginning part where it's awkward and clumsy. Like there's a lot of dialogue in this film that's intentionally clumsy where it just comes off very, very off the cuff and they kind of draw attention to the clumsiness of it and kind of feels honest. But they also, is, the clumsiness is also done in such a way where it's, especially when David Burns in the car, where his kind of the awkward way he approaches the dialogue is, meant to draw an attention to it uh it's it's it has a there's a lot of purpose in the movie it feels like it's just really hard for me to discern a lot of the purpose a lot of the purpose is just like intentional i don't know irreverency and uh mm-hmm. nonsense and it's just i don't know it's kind of hard for me to get through which is weird yeah i i uh definitely feel that that sense of purpose that they have in that like uh I, I got the sense uh, when I was watching it that it feels very very like like uh, it it's trying to match like some sort of a style, but it feels very very scripted throughout. Like everyone seems to be speaking in a very direct sort of way. It's a very um, conscious of its of its style. So it seems I agree with you. It's like it has purpose, but it 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 um, is purposely convoluting that. It's like uh, you try to figure out what he's trying to do, and then he's like, oh, I'm going to do, like, eight other things, and none of them are going to, like, sort of converge into one idea. It's just all over the place. But. I definitely agree with that, where it feels like a movie that's trying to misdirect me, but it's not hiding anything with the misdirection. It's just it's trying to make me not be able to think it through. Like, it's mm-hmm. like those, you know, that, uh, that that's like that short story by Vonnegut, or whatever. There's, like, little noisy things that interrupts the thoughts. Uh uh, where every time you're, you have like a thought that's starting to get too deep or too invested, that's a little machine that makes a noise to stop you from being able to complete that thought. <laughs> it's a lot, it kind of reminds me of that, where every time it feels like there's something there, like he's drawing a full point together, he just switches or he yeah. says something that'll just stop it dead. I actually do have a guess about that. I was wondering about that too, because um, obviously there seems to be a point of view here, but it doesn't seem particularly uh, angry. 
Usually when a musician has a political or cultural statement to make, they're pretty unambiguous about it. I would say even clumsy. <laughs> it's usually not very artful, right? Um, and I was trying to figure out whether or not Byrne was really critiquing the culture so much, or if he was just sort of observing it. Like, I thought maybe there seemed to be enough affection there that it was more of like a Warhol thing. Um, mm-hmm. where he's just sort of interested in culture and maybe even kind of likes the contradictions of it or likes some of the things that are wrong with it. Like, he just finds it too fascinating to dislike. And then he says that thing about the houses in the suburbs, no one can say they're not beautiful. And I just start, and the fact that he's so understated about it, and like you said, he keeps cutting away from the points when they start to get sharp. Um, and it sort of blunts them, which happens anyway because his voice is so calming mm-hmm. and muting and whatever word you want to use. He just has a very soft voice. I kind of wonder if he was deliberately pulling his punches because he wasn't trying to make a very uh, a critical film. Right, and I um, I definitely think it made sense to me when I was watching it that it was uh, that you know that it was a, a musician making the film, sort of in the sense that it really felt a lot like um, like, like a film about experiences going on tour. You end up in lots of strange areas with uh, with local people that want to talk to you, and so. It seemed like this sort of like you know conglomeration of all these stories and things that he'd picked up while traveling uh, to do his music, and so that's a great point. Um, and it did feel like not just like on tour, but it felt like a music video. I was thinking during the first number on stage, boy, this would make a great music video, and it turns out it was a music video. They used that exact <laughs> footage, uh, well, and then added in some other footage and made that into a music video with all the people going up onto the to the microphone and taking their turn singing. And I thought, wow, that was actually pretty ahead of its time. That feels like an OK Go music video gimmick, right? Having a bunch of different people sing their song or something at a mic. Um, but it also reminded me, um, in addition to like not taking itself too seriously and kind of pulling its punches, uh, Brendan, you remember the Mishima podcast we did where we talked about how it, it drew attention to its low budget nature. It let you yeah, see the sets. You got that here with the obvious green screen while driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in particular, when he's turning the steering wheel and all sorts of impossible angles while he's driving, like not even trying to hide the fact that he's totally not driving. Yeah. But one thing that I thought was really interesting and you mentioning it being like on tour uh, kind of brings that to the fore. Uh, I read an interview recently with uh, James Franco. I think it was in Vanity Fair, but maybe not. And he, James Franco's an interesting fellow, uh, as you've probably noticed. Um, and the most inter- interesting thing he said in this interview was sort of alluding to the fact that when a movie star goes into other art forms, they are immediately looked down on. But that doesn't happen in the other direction. So when a musician goes into movies, right, or sculpture or something like that, it's almost like they're deigning to get into a lower art form, probably because movies are a newer art form. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting here because, yeah, he's absolutely right. When a musician, uh, sorry, when an actor like James Franco makes music, people think, oh boy, here we go. You know, he's putting out a Christmas album or whatever. But here David Byrne makes a movie and it's ostensibly kind of serious. Right. I think that's an interesting point. And I do think you're right on, uh, it's, it's definitely true. And I think you're also, he's right about the axis of it being a lower art form. Cause I'm trying to imagine like if a TV person went into movies, it would be seen as a step up, essentially, and we'd be respecting that. But if a movie star hops into a TV show, like a lot of the times, and this actually really bothers me about TV, is if a movie star goes into a TV show, uh, the writers also write that person to be like a superhuman and like nothing goes wrong. And it's really actually annoying. Like there's only a few TV shows. Like actually, Seinfeld is one of the ones that did this well, where they actually like let the characters have flaws and they don't just like have all the characters stand around and go oh my god it's blank or whatever right uh but i think you're right where uh it's just because of the people thinking of it as a lesser art form and and 
I don't know that that's well, it's interesting. Yeah. One of the only uh, one of the earliest uh, examples of that I can remember actually is way back in the day in South Park's like third season when they had George Clooney on and he was the voice of a dog that barked a couple times and that was it. <laughs> um, and yeah, now that fun. but it's interesting you mentioned that um, you're totally right that it's usually a step up to go into the move from TV to movies or down uh, vice versa. But that's definitely changing, right? Like I feel like that is yeah. something that has been true overwhelmingly and it's just now starting not to be true and of course like the first thing I think of is Alec Baldwin on 30 Rock and that went so well for him and they didn't fall prey to what you're talking about that we're now seeing it a lot more uh, but that's because TV uh, is an even newer art form than movies and so it's taking longer to, to get the same level of respect but it's definitely getting there yeah well like when it's like when Brian Cranston stepped down from Breaking Bad into the Godzilla movie <laughs> right yes <laughs> yeah it's all that was his peak apparently his two biggest roles are both on TV well, I, I was um I was thinking in addition to movies sort of being, you know, considered this lesser art form, uh, because it's, it's, uh, still so young. I think one of the other important aspects of it, why people consider it to be, um, you know, stepping up when you enter movies from another field is that, uh, movies are like, are a difficult business to run. Um, it wasn't until like pretty recently that it became pretty cheap to shoot a movie and distribute a movie. Like, you know, before, before we had very cheap cameras and we could distribute things digitally, it is very expensive to make and get your movie to people. You need a lot of money for it. So it's like, it, there's the, you know, there's the element of it being considered a lesser art. And there's also the element of, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big business endeavor really to start a movie. So it's, you know, uh, it's a big investment into it versus like, oh yeah, you know, I just, I just sat down and made a quick album or I had a ghostwriter write me a book and then, you know, I'm just trying to make a quick buck off of it. Yeah, a guitar and a microphone or a typewriter or whatever, the barriers to entry are a lot lower, even if it's harder to penetrate the industries. In other ways, the actual creation of the art, uh, way easier. Um, it's interesting that you mention, uh, you know, the film industry, the business side of it, because that segues pretty well into one of the major themes of the film, such as it is which is, you know, capitalism and kind of using capitalism as a way to talk about just life changing in general. Um, I actually thought one part of this movie, uh, I know Slappy who picked it is actually kind of the one dumping on it early, but I will give it credit in that it had a couple really cool little moments like uh, the dueling auctioneers on the ta- talent show, because that is a really good metaphor for commerce as art, because <laughs> it's literally, you know, they're trying to entertain people. How do they entertain people? Just dueling auctioneers, just literally just sp- Bidding out prices, you know, as if that itself were an art form. Um, and of course it talks about, you know, how this was all different before. And it specifically highlights, uh, the example of the mall as like the nexus of what the world's like now, which is actually, you know, a perfectly fine thing to do when they made this movie in 1986. (laughs) And it's an even more powerful example now because malls are dead. (laughs) So that actually only illustrates the point even better that 20 years later, I mean, here in Pittsburgh, two malls are being sold simultaneously. There was a news article about it recently. I mean, they're dying everywhere. So it actually is even more poignant now, now that that example is terrible. Yeah, you know, somewhat along that point, they have some brief segments where they talk about, you know, computing and... Uh, and microprocessors, and it's basically all just buzzwords that they use during that. And, you know, it's very clear that it's just, you know, see, seen there as just like this future thing. Um, and so they didn't, you know, they didn't really predict that other than just seeing it as this, you know, as this big thing. And it's interesting that, you know, things have changed. Malls are, you know, now, you know, Amazon is the new, is the new mall, but, um, one of the things that I always wonder when thinking about how that's changed is that um, 
I wonder if movies have the ability to tackle that as a subject, like, cause it's very hard to, to, uh, you know, actually just display, it would be very hard to make a movie that exists mostly on the internet. It's very difficult just to be like, all right, you can just show the screen and, and you know, things will happen like that. Like it's, it's all very abstract now. And I'm wondering, I, I don't, I don't really think I've seen a movie that has tackled the idea of the internet taking over uh, public spaces in a, in a really, uh, you know, in a really apt way. No, it really is just uh, another plot point in in pre-existing movie narratives. You know, at this point, it's just a bunch of green text on a black screen and a a hacker with conspicuously huge biceps typing <laughs> furiously on a keyboard and then saying, "We're in," because yeah. they have to say, "We're in." Um, th- so to the capitalist critiques, I there one line stood out um in particular uh when Spalding Gray's character, and we'll get to that in a second because oh my god, Spalding Gray, um says we're growing like there's no tomorrow. Which I heard it, and I thought, oh, that's just a cliche. And then I thought about, I thought about it for a second. I said, wait, nobody ever says that about a business because that's not actually a good thing. You know, it, saying we're growing a lot is a good thing. Saying you're growing like there's no tomorrow is saying you're growing like there's no consequences for what you're doing, which is probably <laughs> what he was getting at. If that was deliberate, I thought that was actually a very clever use of cliche that's actually commentary. And uh, getting back to Spalding Gray, but uh, the one the one scene that I really do like is the 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 dinner scene because that it's 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 I do wish that they had went on with it and maybe tried to make it more of a point out of it. But obviously, I just like the the actual scene itself with the with the I think there's a lobster and like some tomatoes and the asparagus root where there's like this vague point being made about uh, about. What would eventually I kind of when when I was listening to this I thought of programmers but at this point it's actually engineers and so it was funny because it connected to me where I'm like I'm thinking of programmers where they kind of spin off of large corp of large kind of like collectives of programmers and start just making up businesses where it's really small and that's become the new thing but back then it was just I guess engineers uh, mm-hmm. and talking about like the there's no concept of a week anymore and that really applies in my mind to the programmers I know uh, where they basically just interchange their work hours and their leisure hours and it just switches from one to the other without without basically uh any segue i guess where just like i will actually be hanging out with them and they'll get an idea and they'll start doing it or they'll be like deep in program and like ah, i'm bored and then they'll go do something else too <laughs> and, and all that thing about them leaving the uh, the companies and starting their own ventures i mean it, he's basically describing silicon valley startup culture there too mm-hmm. but this is in 1986 so both right. of those are really really prescient um and I do have to note uh, that Spalding Gray fits perfectly in this film uh, because the whole movie is like one of his stories. It's just a bunch of little vignettes kind of strung together and through the sheer force of personality sort of made interesting. Uh, I don't know if either of you guys are familiar with Spalding Gray in general. Uh, not uh, too much. Not. Okay, well, oh, you're in for a treat then. Uh, he was basically, and I just love that anyone ever got to have this job, he was a professional rock tour. He was a professional storyteller, and I'm not making that up. Like, it really, he would go and have, like, these little venues, and he would sit at a table with a chair and just tell stories, and long, meandering stories that were not interesting on paper, but they were interesting when he told them. And you can find a few of them in movie form. Uh, I think Swimming in Cambodia is his most popular, but I kind of like Grey's Anatomy, uh, which is more recent. I know diehard Spalding Gray fans are yelling at their computers right now saying that I'm crazy for putting those two next to each other but please check them out it's literally like 80 minutes of him telling stories um, and if you like this movie even a little bit you'll probably like that 
Um, but this is the kind of movie he would have to be in. Uh, and this is about the only time he would have been in this kind of movie because he was a lot more popular in like the early 90s. I'm sure there are like 20 New Yorker essays written about him because um, he's that kind of guy. But yes, if anyone's listening to this, both of you guys, please check out Spalding Gray. One thing I like about Spalding Gray, uh, apart from his, uh, I like his name a lot because it's a, it's a super cool name. Um, and he knows that and he works it into his stories. He'll say, you know, and she said to me, now Spalding, and he'll like go out of his way to do that a lot. Um, and I kind of noticed that a lot of people in this movie have weird names. They say that uh, Sergio Leone used to cast people for their faces. Um, I think David Byrne cast people for their names. There's Spalding Gray, Pop Staples, <laughs> Tito Lariva, and Swoozy Kurtz are all in this movie. Those are like the, those are, it's kind of weird to say, but those are names that don't get made anymore. Yeah, cause, well, I, I assume Swoozy isn't on anyone's birth certificate, but it, back, <laughs> back in the days when people were okay to take a nickname and treat it like their actual first name. Right, as opposed to now where we take internet names and actually, like, <laughs> oh yeah, we're we're so much more refined, slappy and blue deed. Right. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I really, I strongly identify with uh, with my username. It's actually, um, this is a bit of a tangent, but I was in the supermarket the other day, and I, uh, as I went in, I took over a Pokemon Go gym, uh, and this was about midnight. <laughs> Uh, you, you, just, so I, you just dated the ever-living crap out of this podcast. I'm just saying. In six months, <laughs> right. people are going to be like, that's what's true. a Pokemon Go gym? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, that, that's actually really true because that'll be, this, this is definitely like a fad moment moment. I, I think it's, it's fascinating because it will die. There's not enough gameplay there to sustain it, but it's really fun right now. I'm just hoping it makes it all the way through PAX because I think PAX is really <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> For those who don't know, PAX is the Penny Arcade Expo. It's a video game convention uh, a month and a half from now, and Slappy and I will meet there, actually. It's true. Yep. Uh, and we will hopefully be playing the much more long-lived Spy Party. Yes. Um, anyway, so I was walking into the supermarket. I was like, and there's a gym on the way in. So I took it. This is, this is about midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning. And then um, I was walking through the aisles. And then I was still playing, obviously, when I was walking around the aisles, kind of just bumping into stuff. And these two guys approached me and said, are you Slappy Davis? Uh, and it just it was the, it's the only time ever where somebody I didn't know really well in some way called me by my screen name like it's it's really weird because i do actually strongly identify with my screen name now uh but it was like this shocking moment where it's like it, it was basically like you know uh ben kenobi in star wars you know uh <laughs> i haven't been called just, that for a long time yeah right uh so that was that was just kind of a weird thing and it's also weird because um uh i know blue deed is blue deed uh, but I also, yeah. I know you as multiple names, Yoda. I know you as Yoda and Track, and they're actually kind of getting mixed because it, the interaction was very heavy towards Spy Party. Now it's more a little bit more movie forums, and so you go by many names. To I me. go by, I have many <laughs> names. I'm like Gandalf the Grey. Oh, it's interesting. So, uh, well, now you mentioned that with the casting specificities, um, and I, uh, so I looked up, there's an old Roger Ebert. Um, review of this film that actually is like one of the most informative pieces about this film because I looked for a while to try to find some background on this uh, on the movie and one of the things is there are 40 sets of twins cast in this movie and it does not show up like there's I think there's one reference direct reference to there being twins uh, which is when they're walking through the mall and then but there's 39 other pairs of twins that I actually looked when I was wow. rewatching the movie. I looked for twins and they're just not there but it's it's not important to the film. It doesn't draw attention to itself. And it's something you would not notice unless you were told about it. And so it's just something that I guess David Byrne wanted to put in this film. He wanted 40 sets of twins <laughs> in the film just because. Wow. Well, they do. there are two characters that are twins that he calls the twins. And that's right. it, though. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And That's considering the uh, the nature of the the nature of the film and the and the title of the film, I also wouldn't be very surprised if that was just a complete lie that he threw out there to, to get this true to get some press for it. That's an excellent point. That's an that excellent actually point. would be a great lie too, because then that would make yeah. you question every time you saw a person appear in two different like you saw an extra that appeared in two spots in the film. You could normally you just say. Oh well, either that's a mistake, or that's just them saying that person was actually in two different spots, and you just happen to see him and didn't draw attention to it. But it also mm-hmm. makes you wonder if that's actually a twin in the same clothes put there twice, because that does seem like something David Byrne would do. It's like in the same shot, like have have them switch out for no reason, and it would never be noticed, and no one would ever care. But that's just something he thought was funny, and he wanted to do it. But then again, it could be a lie too. Yeah, there's sort of like a weird avant-garde thing going on here, um, in the sense that it does feel like one giant music video or a series of music videos just sort of uh, strung along. Um, I was thinking, just I was trying to think about other movies that are really just vehicles for the music, sort of, or that. Uh, well, they they do a few different things, right? Sometimes a musician just has something they want to say, and they just make a normal movie, and that's usually pretty bad, in my experience. Mm. Sometimes uh, they sort of are just looking for an excuse to write the music, right? And it's more like a musical where the music is the whole point. Um, and then you have movies like this where they sort of take existing songs, well, at least for the most part, existing songs, and try to string them together in a way that makes narrative sense of them, which I guess is what he was sort of doing here. And it just feels like one big experiment. And I was thinking about like other other areas where music sort of extends past being music. They are all end up being mood-based. They all end up being like trippy like the same goals as like laser floyd you know where it's just about like trying to take what's already there in the music and just sort of enhance the experience by giving it another dimension and i don't know how well that works because it feels just like trying to take one medium and add something to it that that actually lessens it by giving it more right what makes music music is that it's just sound and when you Mm -hmm. add pictures to it it's not just music Mm -hmm. anymore and you have to like work really hard uh and it and it can't really make narrative sense either um I specifically, I was thinking about uh, music journalism, which is almost a contradiction in terms. I don't know if you guys read Rolling Stone or Spin or anything like that, or you know, Pitchfork or whatever. But mm-hmm. I'm of the opinion that writing about music is freaking terrible, um, uh, <laughs> almost always. And I was thinking that movies by musicians are to all other movies what writing about music is to all other writing. Like it's just trying to find this hopelessly elaborate way to convey something that can't be conveyed with words, or in this case, with images. But the thing is, I can't really tell if this was a good example of that or not because um this is one of talking heads worst albums i've i didn't really listen to it much before the actual album that came with it but this is not great talking heads i will say uh i kind of wish they well i guess they did make a music or made a movie about of their other music that was stop making sense which was just a concert uh although visually great and that wasn't but that wasn't by david byrne that was jonathan dem uh, like obviously he had a good degree of influence, but this is it, it's definitely distinct. The two projects are definitely very distinct from one another. Yeah, concert movies are definitely a whole different thing than something that ostensibly you know has mm-hmm. actors and tries to have a narrative. And yeah, early Jonathan Dem before he did Silence of the Lambs, and when you when you mix that in with the fact that you know early John Goodman, uh, Stephen mm-hmm. Toblowski co- wrote this, uh, and that they literally this movie is where the band Radiohead gets their name. This is like <laughs> a stealthily influential movie. Back to back to your point, though, with like the musicians sort of using movies to sort as sort of an accompaniment. I was trying to think of of uh, movies that sort of grab from these other art forms like that and and don't do an awful job. And I, I really I really can't think of very few. But uh, one of the things that came to mind is especially 
um, I think one of the things that you can do with movies is just you know use them as a recording of performance, right? So this is this isn't so much of a performance the musical scenes in this because they're very orchestrated and they're um, you know and and they're basically designed to be music videos as opposed to his other concert film. And I you know um, one of like one of my uh, favorite movies I think is is a uh, Richard Pryor uh, live in concert just because like his performance in that is extraordinary. And so that's sort of a different art form, but you can, but you can make it into a good movie. There's nothing particularly cinematic about it, but it's just a great way to reveal performance. And, and that's, I think where movies have a strong suit as far as uh, dealing with music. Uh, but that's not, so much what it's used for, except in a very conventional, you know, just have standing cameras and, and shoot a concert type deal. I like that you mentioned the Richard Pryor thing, though, because the recording is very similar to actually being there because that is the purest form of what he does. Yeah. You know, is the live performance more than the recorded album. Whereas with musicians, it's the other way around. The concert film is the lesser form. The record itself is considered to be the canonical thing. That's I think that's one of the reasons, by the way, that people uh, take... Uh, uh, films of uh, stand-up routines a little more seriously than they do concert films because it is a, a pure distillation of of the ideal, uh, whereas this is like a concert film is sort of a watered-down version. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm kind of wondering if uh, this is kind of back to an earlier uh, discussion, but if musicians stepping into movies kind of feels like a step down, isn't also because it feels like cheating. If you're if you're a musician that's telling stories through music alone, and now you're cheating and adding another layer, where it's saying like, "Oh, well, you couldn't do it with just music, and now you need another layer uh, to do it." But mm-hmm. then he tells a the the thing is this kind of movie is is a good example of some not doing that, where they're not trying to tell I think the same story a lot of their music does, although I guess that's not quite true. But the the feeling of going from the uh, between these stories wouldn't have played off very well in the just listening to the album, I believe. I don't know. I haven't heard, I didn't listen to the album before seeing this movie, so it's kind of hard to judge. But if you just listen to the album, you would not get the same feeling of, uh, I don't know, of a little bit of trepidation about the future, about, uh, about, about, about how, about just, I don't know, computers just in general, kind of like how people would worry about the internet 10 years ago. That wouldn't really come off very well in the, in the album itself. And also, I think it kind of also competes against it. Cause like there's a little song about, um, like where he goes to the, the shaman guy, I guess. I'm not quite sure what he is because he's I think kind of, I guess just, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, that would, that just felt really, it felt really out of place in, uh, in the, in the album and in kind of the movie. And I guess movie kind of just draws it in. It feels more in, place in the movie because they're able to they're able to layer it into the john goodman love story but such as it is yeah but you're right it is sort of like a you know you couldn't get it across in the music so now you're making a movie that just comes out and tells us sort of well relative to the music at least it's still pretty ambiguous it kind of makes it more uh, makes it clearer what you were trying to do it's like cinematic liner notes or something mm-hmm. right to slappy's point i don't purchase spotify every month so i uh listen to a lot of the music that i listen to via youtube and I find myself very consistently, if the, if the, whatever song or album is on there in form of music video, I literally, I won't watch it like that. I'll <laughs> click to another tab because I very often find that, you know, the, that the music video is either just like a straightforward accompaniment or it really just like reduces the complexity of the music and it makes it less interesting to me. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Like I have, like whenever I put I put together lists of music, and I use YouTube just because it's an easy thing that everybody can see. I almost always select the just like a blank album cover of nothing mm-hmm. because a lot of the music videos honestly are terrible. Also, um, uh, and you're right where it kind of also guides your thinking about it way too much because the other thing I hate is there's also certain songs that I really liked that now my guiding has been like uh, there's this. Uh, there's this song called Retreat by uh, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Um, there's the, there's, I love this song and I just despise the animation. There's, there's no reason. There's nothing in the lyrics that would ever refer to bad animation. But now whenever I hear the song, that's all I think about. And I don't like the song as much anymore. And it's a big bummer because I really liked the song before. <laughs> yeah. And that goes to what you're saying about it being a crutch. I, I actually totally agree. I was trying to think of like, what's, what else, what other art forms could you do this in? Like, you can't write a poem and say, oh, and listen to this music while you're reading it, you know, and make sure you keep in tune, right? I want the music to swell right when you hit this line. <laughs> You'd think, well, you just sound like a really crappy poet. It kind of gets near that debate about whether or not you should use music in movies at all. Like a lot of people, a lot of directors like won't use music unless it's incidental, right? Because like if they hear it on the radio or if they're in a symphony or something like that, they'll let it be in there. But a lot mm-hmm. of people just refuse to use music at all because they see it as a crutch. I feel like you can use it well, but not thinking, not thinking about it before you put it in about it just if you do it automatically just because, oh, this is a spot where sad music would go in to make the audience feel sad. If you think about it and then you say like, okay, actually I should just rewrite this a little bit so it actually comes across better and not use music. If you think about it, it's like, well, this scene needs music because of such reason. As long as it's, as long as it's conscious, I, I'm okay with it. But a lot of the problem is people don't even think about the choice. It's just so automatic now. You just put music here. I definitely get the argument. I will say though that part of me feels like at that point you're not. Uh, exploiting the medium uh, the way you could, right? It's almost like mm-hmm. when you film one of those movies that could easily be a play or could be a radio play or whatever. I feel like you're kind of missing out. Um, I, I'm actually reminded of a... Uh, this was uh, like a behind-the-scenes featurette or something for uh, one of M. Night Shyamalan's movies. Uh, one of the good ones, don't worry. One of the first few he did. I think it was Signs, uh, but it might have been Unbreakable. And he was talking about how every time he writes a screenplay and starts to film a movie, he says, okay, this time I'm not using music. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to put any music in my movie. I don't need it. And he goes, and every time the, the composer he works with, which was like always James Newton Howard, would start to come up with a score, and he'd put it under the mu- movie, and he'd go, yeah, this is a lot better. You know, just every time <laughs> he would have to be talked into it, but he always was. Something Sabi said uh, just a moment ago is one of the big criticisms that I've that I found with um, I think it's John Williams and his work with uh, Steven Spielberg and others is is that um, there's uh, very little ambiguity in uh, in the in the scores that he uses uh, for the films. It basically is like you know follow, like I'm going to give you a through line of of an emotional track and you know just ride it like it's a roller coaster and then and then get off. Right. You know, it's it's just there to be like feel this here, feel this there. All right, we're good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that actually leads to a really interesting question, which is what I just said. I said it. I complained that you couldn't remember any of the music in some of these movies. Is that a valid complaint, or is it good when it fades into the background and maybe the movie sort of absorbs it and you feel differently, but you don't realize why? Or is it good when you notice, you know? the Jurassic Park theme, the Superman theme, and you can hum it to yourself on the way home. Well, the Jurassic Park theme is, I, I do like the use of motifs to kind of uh, send send a message back about a character. Like, there's a lot of really great use of... Uh, have you guys... Speaking of Fargo, 
Now, uh, the Fargo television show. Have you guys both seen that? I have, and it's, I love it. It's so good. The, the first season has like those, you know, those motifs of the two assassins and then the, I can't remember, the Billy Bob Thornton's character. Yeah. When they're like, and then they have a, basically a showdown. And then they use the motifs whenever they're back and forth. I like it. I really like it, like, with, when it's used like that. And, like, um, uh, the Jurassic Park theme is a really good use of a motif, especially near the end when the Tyrannosaurus Rex comes out and it's like a, it's like a triumphant thing. I love motifs in music, but when they use it kind of scattershot, a lot of the times it's, it doesn't really land where I feel like it's the, oh, Jurassic Park is also kind of cheating because they use the, they use that motif through several different movies and now it's really effective. I really know what they're trying to get when they do it. But then if there's just, if there's just a random thing where they use the same instruments, um, at, let's say it was the end of the first movie or, and it was like the triumphant Tyrannosaurus Rex comes and tears a bunch of little velociraptors and they used this like horns and strings and it's a completely different thing. It wouldn't have been very good, but it's because they consciously took back a theme that you heard before and associated with other parts of the movie uh, that it worked. And so, again, I think it's more of a consciously using music to drive forward a point uh, can be totally done well. It's if you're not thinking about it and it's just happening uh, and you're just using it as something to explain something else and you just, you're trying to trigger them to associate certain sounds with uh, a feeling. It's not necessarily doesn't make you a bad filmmaker, but it's they used to say things think it's a crutch and that's just kind of what people say in the first place it really is all in the execution i mean you'll have different themes like the love theme the bad guy theme right and that's good if you do it it really is just about whether or not you do it elegantly i think mm-hmm. um one of my f- absolute favorite things in any movie is where you've established a theme for someone like the villain or the hero or whatever and then it, they sneak it up on you during a quiet moment and you sort of realize all at once what you're listening to like, mm-hmm. um, this isn't the best example possible, but in Revenge of the Sith, when you basically see Darth Vader for the first time in the prequels, there's like this, this really low level music going on, and then it sort of fades up into the Imperial theme, just bare, like very imperceptibly, just as the helmet's sliding on, and you realize mm-hmm. you're listening to a very slow, drawn out version of the Imperial theme that always accompanies Darth Vader. And I just wanted to stand up and applaud, you know, like, I was like, that was it. I didn't like the prequels that much, but that scene and that moment in particular, you feel like it's 20 years in the making where they have all this emotional weight tied to this music. And as obvious as it is that they should use it there, you have to do it and you have to do it that way and you have to do it artfully. Um, and I just love, I love that recognition because you're already watching the movie and then some, it sort of slaps you across the face. A different part of your brain that's listening for sound, right? Rather than looking for images kind of goes, Hey, wake up. You recognize this. And I like the kind of like emotional whiplash of that. Mm. One of the strangest, uh, movies that I've ever seen uh, relating to, you know, how to, how to use mu- uh, music in movies is, uh, it's called Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach. And it's, uh, intended as a, as a biography of of box life but it's done basically where in incredibly fast german you have uh you know this this character reading basically the all of the events that happened in box life and it's like a whirlwind of of facts that keep passing by in chronological order and then after you know after they're done reading that and you're like trying to remember everything that's just happened and like and processing it all because it's going by super fast. You just get, um, you know, the performance of, of, you know, one of his songs and the, that's within that time period. And that really allows you to just sort of like take in the facts as they are and then it, and form your own sort of vision of everything as it happens. And it really takes away any sort of, uh, well, it takes away most 
subjectivity that you traditionally get with displaying music and dis and displaying like uh, biography. It's because the uh, the songs themselves are literally just people dressed up as they would have been in that time period playing the music. There's no dramatization of it. It's just them playing the music and then reading of facts. That's yeah, and it kind of anchors them then and gives them structure, mm -hmm. I guess. Which it kind of reminds me of how this was really artful when like Scorsese did it like 25 years ago or whatever, but now everyone does it, which is if you have a film that's set in the past, just sort of not playing at full volume in the background, you'll have just one of the top 40 hits, you know, some oldie mm -hmm. playing underneath it, right? To sort of anchor you in time. Um, and I guess musical cues kind of do the same thing with emotions, you know, because the villain theme comes up and you're like, oh, the villain, I guess I'm feeling trepidatious or whatever, whatever you're supposed to feel. So instead of doing it chronologically, you do it emotionally. But it's kind of the same idea. But it's just funny that every time I think about the good examples of this, I think of five bad ones, too. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of coming around to the idea, bringing this all back to true stories, that it's not that this is inherently good or bad. It's just that you can do it well or not. The thing else about true stories is the w we're kind of discussing music as background things where the, the it interferes with the movie. Like it'll like uh, when they're walking off into the field, the camera just pans over to like this series of kids uh, uh, singing one of the songs, yeah. uh, and it just it just came out of nowhere. It didn't really make sense. Yeah, it's super weird. Uh, and that happens a lot. And like, there's the one of the scenes I didn't I fell on went on way too long. And I actually, this is like, I while I didn't love the film, there weren't a lot of spots where I felt bored. Except for eventually during, uh, what was it? Uh, puzzling evidence. I got, I eventually got bored of puzzling evidence. It might just be because a lot of the, the references he was mm -hmm. making kind of outdated. Um, but that was the, that was the church, that was the, the scene in the church, um, where it has the, has the preacher kind of going crazy and drawing conclusions and they just kind of get wacky instead of, like he, it, it, he mixes in like real normal conspiracy theories with, uh, strange conspiracy theories. Yeah. Uh, apparently that was actually, kind of the point of the film for Byrne. I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but my wife was actually doing a little research about it. And David Byrne, this sounds made up to me, but he says he actually went to like a pseudo church where they sort of preached about tabloids and tabloid journalism and conspiracies. And that uh, that's kind of the whole idea is that the true stories, they're all tabloid stories, sort of. They're all like little legends. Like you have that woman who lies about everything, right? She's like the embodiment of it. Which is funny because if that's what he was actually going for... I don't feel like it landed, because that just feels like one scene, you know? It doesn't feel like the pivotal scene, it doesn't feel like it's encapsulating the movie, it just feels like one part of it. If I had to pick a theme for the movie, it'd be, yeah, you know, capitalism, commodification, mm -hmm. art and commerce, all that stuff. Although, I really don't think you could pick one. I was actually trying to sum this up. I started a little gimmick website called allyouneedtoknowaboutmovies.com, and... It was, it's just one sentence about every movie listed on the site that gives you an idea of whether or not you want to see it. And the inspiration was that I saw Peter Jackson's uh, adaptation of King Kong. And I got back from it. My, my brother said, how was it? And I thought for a second, and I said, Adrian Brody kicks a raptor in the face. And he just paused, <laughs> and, and he just went, oh, it sounds really good then. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it was really good. That If you want to see Adrian Brody kick a raptor in the face, you'll like this movie. And the only sentence I could come up with for this movie, and this is really a great way to explain how weird it is, is that the emotional climax of the film is John Goodman singing an autobiographical country song to find a wife. <laughs> and if that sounds interesting to you, watch True Stories? Question <laughs> mark. Well, and the 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 fun little bit of irony that was in uh, that was in that whole part is that he ends up uh, after that marrying the the woman who never leaves her bed. And it was, you know, he spent the whole film, uh, you know, putting himself out there and only to, you know, 
you know, marry this woman who did the exact opposite, just sat in her bed her entire life. That's a great point. I hadn't caught on that at all. Um, And I also find it kind of ironic that the movie is sort of uh, taking a dim view of technology, but that's how he finds his wife. She sees him on TV. Mm -hmm. Similar to, you know, what I said, the sort of ironic ending to that. I think one of the um, interesting things about the movie is for for as weird as a lot of it is and as unconventional as a lot of it is, there are, is a lot of like pretty conventional, straightforward humor in the movie. It's not like you know we get someone who just really likes to you know lie and tell stories about herself, and it's and it's very uh, you know th- that's something that we've seen in you know a number of other movies, and you know it's it's, it's funny broad in humor, a yeah, very traditional sense. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I think he, he wanted to make a strange film, but he didn't want to make it, um, you know, so strange that, that it uh, slogged along or something like that. It, it keeps going, it keeps going fast and, and, you know, it has a good bit of humor thrown in there like that. Yeah, there's not like a scene where it's if you have, uh, sometimes when people get outside of their art form where they don't know how to make something poignant, they'll just draw it out until the audience gets uncomfortable. A lot of musicians, like, actually... Uh, now that I'm, I'm just now thinking of movies where musicians did that. The Beatles movies, where they had like the the scene is I want to say Hard Day's Life or something, where they count from one to sixty <laughs> to emphasize how long yeah. a minute is. And that I mean that it's it's kind of interesting, but it's basically just making you bored to make a point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then this scene, this movie didn't really have anything where it's intentionally trying to make the audience uncomfortable to make a point. It didn't. It wasn't just saying like, "Oh, you don't like this," and that's the point is that you don't like it. Why don't you like it? It's actually just a just threw stuff together. Like he didn't. I don't think he made it with the intention of making it enjoyable. It just wasn't something that entered into his idea. He didn't. He wasn't trying to. He wasn't trying to freak people out, uh, which I think is a lot of musicians like they go for shock value when they go for music videos. I guess are kind of the closest touch point. A lot of them have shock value in them, where they'll just be something mm-hmm. weird that'll just kind of stick with you. Where there's not a lot in this movie that sticks with you unless you like quotes, and that's what my favorite Yeah, is. there's much mm-hmm. more of a mm-hmm. gee-golly, you know, wouldn't things be better if sort of implication uh, than there is, like, you know, harsh cultural critiques. Um, which And it was much more positive than negative uh, in that sense. You yeah. know, it was more like, here's what we should be doing, not so much railing about what we are doing. Uh, and obviously that's embodied in the little girl in the beginning and the end. I assume we all probably just agree that that's just, this is what we should be like as people, right? Uh, untethered <laughs> from society and technology and just sort of enjoying being in the world. Uh, dare I say, more like the Native Americans that he opens with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think for me, it, it was really important that the film didn't be very pessimistic or very critical of the of the people in the film because um you know one of the things that i was thinking is that both this film and the last film are really um you know films about a specific location as seen by outsiders so the the previous one we did paranoid park was was a movie about america like that was made by a uh, by someone from england and this one is a movie that is set you know, somewhere I, they mentioned seeing Fort Worth, so I think Dallas, Texas area ish. Um, uh, you know, by someone who grew up in in you know the UK and Canada and Maryland, so it's very clearly you know an uh, an outsider looking in. Uh, yeah. Also, I think it's very important to not you know you can show personalities, but shouldn't pass as little judgment as possible because unless you you know, unless it's more than just like a, 
you know, a cursory hearing stories from people and hanging out briefly with people. You, you shouldn't really be stepping in there and saying, okay, this is what these people are like and it's good for this or it's bad for this. You know? Yeah, you're right. There's a much more detached uh, view. Um, and that's actually a really smart uh, conclusion to draw that this is sort of like uh, it's doing very similar things to Punishment Park but in a totally different way, that they do actually have that kind of through line. Mm-hmm. That's actually, that just reminded me of another thing. The, a feeling that I got from the movie is partway through the movie, I'm like, this is like Portlandia, <laughs> but like 30 <laughs> years before, where a lot of people, like, uh, I, you're right, where it treats them very genuinely. Like, it doesn't, it's not, this is not like a, you know, uh, alt rocker coming in and making fun of Texans, right? right. Mm-hmm. For being backward and, uh, and, you know, old fashioned. And it's not violent revolutionary. This isn't a muse song or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Oh, then that's actually another point. I'm, I'm going to come back to the Radiohead thing in a second. Okay. Um, but uh, in Portlandia, it's actually a very loving treatment of the people. And it's funny because I would, I, I'm surprised that someone who doesn't really, uh, or Portland doesn't really land for it, could definitely see it as like, oh, they're just making fun of these people and they're like, uh, they're kind of mean spirited or whatever. But actually, it's very like loving treatment where you can always, it's always out of goodness mm-hmm. that they're doing the things. Yeah. It's just maybe naive goodness. But it's always out of or like, over you know, the top passion. or silly or right, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, because like everything right, we know, right. not that they're both crazily outspoken, but everything we know about uh, Fred and Carrie in real life is that they're both very left wing people, um, and they mm-hmm. presumably do agree with people in Portland on the majority of issues. But that doesn't mean they can't find the silliness in things that people do yeah. because everyone does something silly, mm-hmm. right? And and that actually ties right back to the Coens because they definitely poke yeah. fun and they get humor out of little, you know, sort of uh, middle America, flyover country kind of uh, people. Uh, but mm-hmm. they clearly really like them too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, and I get the same um, the the same feeling from David Lynch with his with his projects like that. Uh, also because he you know grew up in areas like that. But you know, I recently you know moved to Texas. You know, so I have to defend you know Texans now. So I wanted <laughs> to make sure that the movie wasn't being offensive to them. Right. Well, you know, I've actually seen this in a few a couple of writers, and I'm sorry to put these two writers even in the same group, but I always think of David Foster Wallace and Chuck Klosterman, um, who both kind of grew up in like rural type areas. I think uh, I, I forget where David Foster Wallace grew up, and uh, Chuck Klosterman. It was North Dakota, and they both write like think PC stuff later, um, which again is doing a disservice to Wallace a little bit. But you get the idea. Uh, but what they retained is that even though they both become much more progressive, uh, just sort of growing up and moving out into the world more, they ret- they retain that uh, affinity for small town people, right? They retain like mm-hmm. a defensiveness, like they disagree with so many of those things, but they really don't like them being made fun of or talked down to or anything mm-hmm. like right. Like they're clearly like noticeably uncomfortable with it in their writing. Yeah. They qualify it accordingly, and that's the same thing I get from yeah, Burn and your right Lynch, and certainly the Coens is. I don't even like. I don't know how much they agree with small town people on social issues or economic issues or whatever. But I know that they like them and they don't like people talking down to them, and that absolutely comes through in the art and certainly in Portlandia too. I think yeah. that oh, the the David Foster Wallace uh, connection is spot on because this feels very much like it's part of the new sincerity movement. Yeah, it's definitely like it because when the when the people are like having their little small discussions and they're talking about um and you know tell you like you know John Goodman's a really good example of someone who's very just sincere yes he's just he's he's all about matrimony he's not he's not uh just trying to have sex or he's he he and he really he wants matrimony not just because of a status symbol because he actually wants in his life and he's very it's almost it, well, it's very charming yes when he's just very forward with it he is you know, even when he goes above and beyond he has the commercial um <laughs> and the and the, the wife wanted sign out in front of his house yeah uh he's he's just very honest and earnest and caring where 
yeah, I could see like a sitcom take on the same kind of character. They would just be like him being obsessive and like he would like trip over himself because he was looking at a girl too closely or something that just made fun of him for being like a fool or, and like come off like a stalker or something. You could definitely treat the same sort of character type of someone who was desperate for matrimony and just make fun of them and be like, what an idiot. And that was not the point of this film. This film was very much these people have these like really odd little things. And I like he likes the small, strange parts of them. Um, and back to what uh, Brendan said about uh, touring. Uh, I think that's like, it's almost like the last line of the film. I want to say mm-hmm. is uh, he's in the car and he's driving away where he's talking about when he was new play when he's in a new place, he notices all the little things, but then he gets used to it. And then only by forgetting, can I re-experience it mm-hmm. where he likes all those little tiny things, but he can't, it seems like he's also the kind of person that doesn't want to sit still. Like it's, it's not a movie where an outsider comes to town, finds all these quirky, wonderful things about the town and then decides to live there forever. Um, where you have like a, where he's converted essentially by the town. He's not. He, he basically moves on, I guess, to another town. I guess you don't know what happens to the narrator or what he is or why he's even really there. Um, but he moves on. He's going to go to someplace new and experience that little strange homey town. Yeah, there'll just be another town. I immediately brought to mind uh, the T.S. Eliot poem, The End of Our Exploring, you know, that whole thing. Um, there's sort of that idea that by leaving your by leaving your place and going to other places, you learn more about who you are and you learn more about where you're from. Uh, and I have to say real quick, uh, big credit to John Goodman for what you just said. In a lesser, with a lesser actor, it would have all come off as very goofy uh, and mm-hmm. silly and all played for laughs, but you're right. Uh, it comes off as very sincere instead. And there's sort of this vibe of... You know, whether or not you think like this guy, his sincerity makes him better than us, you know? Like, it doesn't even matter if he's right or wrong. It's just that he understands what he wants, and he wants it for the right reasons, and he's clear-headed about it, and that makes him a good guy. And not even that. Like, even even there's even, like, a joke that would have been a fat joke in any other movie, but he just talks about his panda bear shape, and it just (laughs) comes off charming and cute. Like, any other movie, he could have just, like, when he's talking about, uh, even, you could even slip it into that scene where he's talking about, like, I don't want to, I like myself. Like, you could, and there could be something, I don't know, some sort of, like, food joke or fat joke, but he says, I have a very, like, consistent panda bear shape. (laughs) And, like, it's clearly, you know what he means, but... it makes it very appealing and it's it's cute. Yeah, yeah. I I thought I thought John Goodman uh, did a very good job in this. I, I remember, yeah, that that same that same scene. He's he says something like, you know, I'm six foot three inches tall. He he like leaves a big pause yes. in between yes. saying that. And then I heard that first. I was like, three inches. Tall. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I did the same thing. At first, I thought he's only six foot. There's no way. Wait, three inches? What's three inches? Okay, yeah, six foot three <laughs> yeah. inches. Yeah, I, my my brain like totally did a little skip. Um, I guess at the beginning of this, of this, I said I didn't like this movie, and it's still true, but I like thinking about it. And so I feel I'm kind of glad I picked this movie in the fact that that's a critique I've made about a lot of the film selection so far, is I don't like the movie that much, but I really liked thinking about it. Um, and that actually, specifically, uh, Lion in Winter, I've actually, that's probably been my favorite movie so far because I've actually thought back to that movie a lot of times, even though I wasn't crazy about the music, the, the movie because of, I don't like the sound that much, I remember, some yeah. of the visuals, but it's actually really grown on me where I just think about it a lot. I think about the lines a lot. Yeah. Uh, and this is that kind of movie where the actual movie, uh, it's not something I would find directly enjoyable, but if this podcast is an indication, we talked about a lot of things that had really tangentially related to <laughs> because it's it brings up a lot of interesting things. Yes. So I don't know. It uh 
this is all a long way of saying eh, it was like a five out of ten movie, but like a seven out of ten, eight out of ten thinking experience. That was going to be my next question because someone always asks <laughs> us for ratings. So you're going to give it two point five out of five or five out of ten or however many fractions you want to reduce. Yeah, I would say I'd say it's right around like a, a, a half. Yes, yeah, half like it's as, as a movie, which is what I've done the grading for before. Is just mm-hmm. pure movie. How much I enjoyed it. How much I think the movie is a good movie. It's it's right. It's right around average. It does a lot of things really well, and then a lot of things just it just doesn't come together for me. But the but the thoughts and the things it brings up, I like it a lot. Like I recommend it, but it's not a good movie. Half half of whatever scale you're using, which makes sense because it's half movie and half music anyway. That's true. Yeah. Uh, how about you, uh, Brendan? If you had to put a number, I know, I know, I know, <laughs> it's not like that. But people want people. The people demand it, Brendan. I, I, I do it. I'll do it for the people. The, people. the people. You're a man yes. of the people. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I guess you know, six out of ten for me, or you know, two point seven out of five. Okay. Different depending on the scale. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll go the lowest. I'll go like two out of five. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I do like all the all the topics that came up out of it. Um, and I actually don't think uh it would need to change too much to be much better. I feel like if the stories just linked together a little more, if it were a little funnier, right? If they made a little more in, uh, internal sense, it would be one of those weird, interesting, fun movies. A lot of little vignettes, and I feel like they just didn't have quite enough connection to each other. Um, and so I felt, yeah. And so I felt like I was looking for an excuse for them to sing. Yeah, I agree. If they, if they, um, if they, if it was a little bit different, it could remind me very much of uh, of Slacker, which is one of my, which is a movie I love a lot. Exactly. But, yeah. I mean, it's a very tough uh, mood to hit. Um, mm. So I under, I appreciate the degree of difficulty there, at least. Yeah. It's actually the just even trying to rate this movie kind of made me think about the um, the what rating means. As in, I if I'm trying to rate it of the like Roger Ebert graded against the best version of itself it's actually pretty good like this is what this is what it was supposed to be like you're there's not like a little lot a lot of little small complaints against like you could say oh that would have been better it was executed to the degree that david Byrne wanted it to be i don't think there was much that would be improved that it's small you'd have to just do a different movie trying to improve it would just be a different experience Mm -hmm. all the critiques are meta critiques about making it in the first place right exactly Wow them in the end. You got hit. You can have flaws, problems, but wow them in the end. And you've got a hit.